shirt front, Mr. Putin. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up the day is a bum. <laughs> because I want the to do more. you slowly. If you don't vote for the Liberal National Parties, then Anthony Albanese will be the Prime Minister of Australia. Welcome to Edge of the Election, Edge of the Crowds Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jackie. And tonight, as always, I'm joined by Rory and Joel. So how are the two of you tonight? Doing very well. I, I realised that two people doesn't work, so I had to come back. <laughs> uh, I, I was rendered ill by the European elections of the past week, so uh, I'm on the. I'm recover- still recovering from that. But yeah. Oh, there's nothing that can depress you more than an Italian election because Italy has had its most recent general election um, after Five Star and the left wing coalition that it had formed dissolved, um, and Italy has decided to go far right again, um, this time with the Brothers of Italy doing incredibly well. It's expected that 44% of the vote is going to go to the right, with 26% of that total vote going to Brothers of Italy. Um, That's up from 4.5% from the last election, and this is a party that likes to invoke Mussolini, um, so you know where they stand. Yeah, the only brothers are Italy I'm interested in, and Mario and Luigi. So this was this was not good news. And uh, well, the good news is that going far right has never gone badly in Italy before, has it? So everything will be okay. Yeah, I mean, the the thing that struck me, they're called the Brothers of Italy. Their leader's a woman. It's like it feels like sure, surely you should have accommodated this in your name somehow. Uh, it's just, I don't know, all, all strange stuff. I mean, she's a Thatcher-esque woman in being like a woman that hates women. Um, whilst she's going to be the Prime Minister of Italy out of this election, um, she thinks that women's place is in the home. Um, classic contradiction. Also the, the classic uh, right-wing female leader. Um, and those are the ones that actually typically win because no one likes an incel, but a woman that hates women and says incel talking points, that's a winning campaign strategy. Um, But ultimately it is a sad day for anyone that's like remotely left-wing fatally because the left basically conceded before a single vote was counted. Um, Polling closed at like 11 p.m. Italy, uh, like Rome time, and they conceded within a couple of hours. Um, And... As a result, all of the congratulations from the likes of Hungary and other countries that feel bullied by the EU started rolling in for the Brothers of Italy in particular. Yeah, they've kind of cashed in on that anti-EU sentiment that is definitely around in Europe at the moment and uh, they've done pretty well out of it. Obviously, you know, politics goes in cycles and it, it was just the turn of the right wing to take over. We've talked about that before. Unfortunately, they've gone much more to the right than... Uh, we would like, obviously, but, you know, they did win the election, a fair election. So uh, the people will get what they want. Look, if you got Orban praising an election, then things aren't looking too good, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, one of, the, one of the few things that has been keeping Orban relatively in check is that the EU is largely opposed to him. So if you have uh, important EU countries like Italy are stepping up and now aligning themselves ideologically with Orban, then it is a... Uh, a depressing omen where the union we're going in the future. Yeah, I also think that it is deceptive to think that this is some massive swing to the right in Italy. 
Uh, the last election was in 2018 when Five Star and Liga took control of um, the right-wing coalition at the time. That coalition dissolved and Five Star made a like centre-left coalition because they're a big tent populist party, which basically means all they care about is being in power. So, I mean, it would not surprise me if Five Star sort of like joins forces with this coalition. They are just as depraved as Liga and Brothers of Italy. So it's not going to go well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the policies aren't great either. Um, you know, they've recently given support to the Ukraine, but there's definitely some close ties to Russia. And also that you know, anti-EU sentiment is, uh, it comes out of Russia a lot of the time. They want a flat tax, which is obviously, you know, American style politics. It's not going to work in the EU. Um, and it's just, you know, it, it doesn't work in general. So uh, plenty of policies that are, are not great for Italy. Yeah, yeah, we we got a lot of this like pro natal conservative welfare type stuff. So like free nurseries, uh, employment protection for young mothers, um, an increase in like family welfare payments, and even support for disabled people, which I think is a bit, um, I don't know, a bit out of the ordinary for like a very far right party. You, you wouldn't normally expect that. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not, some, it's not bad stuff. It's all obviously it's all taking place within a framework that's a bit worrying, uh, where the pro natalist uh, welfare is, you know, a way of, um, you know, sort of um, more Italian cons- blood. Yeah, it's consolidating that. Yeah, consolidating the nuclear family within within Italy. Yep. Uh, so th- I think there's a bit to worry about there, especially if the, um, you know, uh, undermining the progressivity of their tax system as well. Well, yeah, and a lot of their policies at their core just end up being anti-immigration policies, um, to which even the Pope weighed in with a comment that, whilst I don't speak Italian, um, roughly translates to, hey, maybe be cool to immigrants, guys. Um, It's not a great thing for the Pope, who in a weird way is a king of a predominantly Catholic country, um, to be weighing in on an election but at the same time like he's got a point um and with that it's it just furthers this euroscepticism that's been going on in Italy for a while Italy was one of the big countries after Brexit to like start genuinely talking about their own um plan to leave the EU I don't know what they're thinking as far as uh, the lira is concerned because when the euro and the lira, like when they swapped from the lira to the euro, uh, the lira went to shit to say like that's as nice as you can put it. Um, So it's going to be bad for their economy, full stop. Um, But ultimately I think that it's just so emblematic of this constant right-wing push. and this is a four-year project where Liga has gotten a better hold in the north. The south has moved away from Five Star and now has gone towards Brothers of Italy. Um, and there's just very few footholds, even for, like, traditionally conservative parties like Forza Italia now. Yeah, and I think you know, part of that, so traditional, those traditional parties are kind of going out the window, right? Um, these other parties are, are taking over. And changing politics and part of that is that, and the one that I'm most worried about is that uh, Brothers of Italy want to have an elected president rather than an appointed one. Um, obviously, in the past, Italy has had a problem with dictators and 
that's the kind of thing that, you know, if they want to get more and more power, having their own um, president is, is a way to do that, I would guess. So not, not great there, but overall this is, yeah, just not a great election uh, result. And I think it's, you know, I think we're going to see France, other countries in the EU, Germany really have to stand up and like they've done after the Brexit to show that the EU is still strong. Yeah, it's it's hard it's hard to make any strong predictions about like this rightward shift in Europe, I think, because you know, each country is sort of in a different place, right? Well, like with the UK, it, there's probably gonna be a swing to to Labour in that next election next yeah. election, for instance. And we've seen other countries where like the right wing have been rejected as well. So I'm I'm not yeah, you know, it's hard to say with like those sorts of rejections that are sort of like a short term thing before the right wing really does uh, reconsolidate its power. Um, but it is something to be worried about, I think. I think it's the ultimately populism is probably the thing to be worried about. Um, like, and Five Star is the most obvious example in that the Five Star movement took power in 2018, did everything they could to stay as the party in power. They moved left because they thought that they had to move left. Um, They are now going to move right because they're going to think that they have to move right. Um, And these parties that don't really stand for anything except for Euroscepticism are probably like just as dangerous, if not more dangerous than the ones that are openly like against um, immigration and all that sort of thing because you have no way of predicting what they're going to do. Um, and I also think that Germany and France both respectively are in tough positions themselves. We've just seen in the last election uh, for the president, uh, for the presidential election for France, that uh, the right wing has like with Marine Le Pen has started to take a better uh, foothold in the country. Germany is also kind of having a similar problem with affirmative for Deutsch uh, or AFD. They we're probably a few years away from seeing the actual effects of what's going on with AFD, but that has been almost a 10 year project. Um, And I think it's at the end of the 10 years for these parties as to whether they are solidly going to be starting to take power or if they're going to be like the Palmer United party and fizzle out. Um, Italy is the least stable of the major European countries Um, as they have elections all the time. In between their elections, they turn over prime ministers all the time. Like Italy nearly has a prime minister every other year, a new prime minister every other year. So is Italy the best model to go off? No. But also the fact that they're going to be like, hey, EU, stop bullying Hungary when Hungary essentially does war crimes and human rights violations on the regular to immigrants, not, not really cool with that. And I don't think that anyone that gives a damn about people should be cool with that (laughs) yeah i think this is all it's all gonna it goes in cycles as we've said and uh once we come out of this kind of uh the dip in the economy um obviously we've seen in the uk it's the the pound is now worth as much as the us dollar so things aren't going great in europe overall and uh you know when people are desperate they turn to desperate things and that is the populism you described there jackie um and, and you're right, they don't really have any set policies, as we say, you know, the, the increased welfare payments, definitely not a right-wing policy. Uh, they've kind of taken something out of the Trump playbook there and just promised people what they want rather than having any kind of real ideological stance. Uh, I think actually that this does play into like, like a real ideology where it's, they're not just like, uh, you know, like free market capitalists or anything, right? They're, um, you know, 
like we, we we could probably like put them fascist or fascist adjacent right uh where, where yeah the, the whole thing is like the an economy for um yeah for the promotion of the um of the of the people as conceived of by the state in, in, in which case i think welfare policies do make sense where yeah, in isolation they're probably like not too bad but within this broader project they become uh, a bit a bit problematized i think um but yeah, I don't know. For me, I just I just think of Adam Tooze and I'm like Adam Adam Tooze back in back in 2017. He was like, you know, Europe's gone to hell because never recovered from the GFC, and that's that's sort of where I stand here. I think that never recovered from the GFC uh, and the Eurozone crisis that followed in 2012. Um, they're they're still trying to trying to get back from that. Uh, then then I really yeah, there's never any like good deals worked out to resolve it. So all the economic tensions are still there, just kind of under the surface now. Um, and until something done to really deal with those tensions, I just, you know, I, I think there there will be uh, cause to worry about Europe uh, going far into the future. Well, and I think that there's like the point in what you're saying about the welfare payments is that uh, I hate to like reference boomer conservative talking points, but you've always got those psychopath boomer conservatives that are like the Nazis were actually socialists, despite the fact that like. Ask what they did to Marxists and actual socialists. Um, because, yeah, there's with these right-wing parties, there still is those things that are meant to stir up popular support amongst the everyday people. Um, and the way you do that is by giving them money or not making them pay as much tax and that sort of thing. Um, and ultimately that's how they end up getting so much power that they can then turn into fascist regimes. Um, and, I mean, this party's already been likened to neo-fascists. Um, it was born out of a fascist movement in the end. Um, it's just, it's where it ends up going, how long they stay in power, because this could be a two-month, or not two-month, two-year, three-year thing, um, or they could survive to the next election and be even more powerful. Italy is a mess, though, so... Uh, Never, never count on Italy to actually like do what anyone's expecting it to do because people thought Five Star was going to stay in power as a right wing government after that 2018 election. Yeah, that's it. And you know, part of the right wing coalition, those those things can always tear themselves apart. So, um, still plenty to see on this one. But we might move a little bit north, a little bit east to Azerbaijan and Armenia because. Uh, the conflict over, uh, I don't actually know who is claiming control of the region at this point anymore, uh, has resumed and more than 200 soldiers uh, have been killed in the past week uh, in skirmishes between the two countries. Yeah, uh, it seems that the war of Ukraine has spread out to more of to the kind of that uh, Europe and Asia region and uh yeah, this is kind of, it was a contested piece of land for a long time. Um, a lot of uh, ethnic Armenians in that piece of land, but uh, apparently controlled by Azerbaijan, although the bombing would suggest otherwise. So, yeah, it, it's not looking good. And, you know, I'd, I'd suggest that the attacks on Ukraine by Russia has kind of emboldened uh, Azerbaijan to do this to uh, Armenia. Yeah, I know very little about this, but, but yeah, I mean, like when, when Russia's offering this very... Uh, ethno-nationalist um, justification for the uh, the invasion of, of Ukraine, then yeah, it makes sense we're going to see from other other countries within the sort of 
Caucasian-ish region. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, just, just just sort of makes sense to me. I, as much as I know about this, is that this there's been skirmishes quite a bit over the past two to three years, even really. Like even in 2019, there was a little bit going on. Um, but it's gotten more serious as a result of um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and more concerning because technically speaking, this is Azerbaijani territory, but it's mostly um, um, ethnically Armenian people. And the way that some interviews from like documentaries of the region go is these people, despite being ethnically Armenian, aren't really like strongly tied to either country. Um, so there's probably an argument that there should be some level of independence and autonomy for the region, just regardless but when you constantly got two countries that whilst you have ties to both technically scrapping over the land, not the people, um, and we're seeing heritage sites getting destroyed as a result, it is a big problem because th- these are people's lives that are still at stake. Um, and, I mean, ultimately, I don't think Armenia actually really cares as much as Azerbaijan doesn't care. Yeah, so the reason they're fighting over it seems to be that, you know, it, it's the piece of land that connects Armenia to Iran. Um, I think what it just shows is that the way that countries get broken up, the way they get broken up colonially, uh, and then after, like, when the USSR broke up, does not work. Um, you know, randomly drawing lines on maps does not make much sense. So uh, the, the, the war is there. Um, there's meant to be a ceasefire. Apparently Azerbaijan broke that, but it seems to be, that ceasefire seems to be returning, so we'll see how that goes. Yeah, and then they need to work out something like with the, like how they worked out in like like the Basque country, for instance, where it's you know, and, you know Spain, France sort of agree to let them do their own thing within that little region. I don't know, it probably won't work out something similar here. I reckon. That would be nice. <laughs> I also just can't see that happening. Yeah, probably not. What is happening in Eastern Europe? For the past couple of years even not just this year uh but we might move to russia because whilst we talked a little bit about it last week and i said that things are about to get a whole lot worse um because ukraine had taken territory back turns out things have gotten a whole lot worse um so i think it was wednesday putin made quite the unhinged speech um threatening to nuke ukraine it's all words I think until it's not but at the same time um, there's a lot more that came with that speech because with it uh, was that Russia is going to try and draft over a million uh, young men into the army and as a result um, people have tried to flee the country Russia is now trying to close its borders um, to stop all of these young people from fleeing as well as people, like, there was just a rise in people searching how to break your arm um, on Google or whatever the Russian search, like, predominant search engine is. So it's definitely something that is frightening in the sense of we've now got some, like, obviously there's the situation in Ukraine, but you've got some very, very desperate people in Russia um, that are trying to escape this war as much as possible um, and taking desperate measures as far as someone going and shooting up one of the draft officers after his friend got drafted, um, which is scary stuff, to say the least. 
Yeah, Russia's always had the benefit of having a, a massive population to call upon in times of war. Um, obviously, the World War showed that, and they're trying to use it now. But I think it's all part of Putin kind of losing grip on Russia, both internally and then in regards to the war in Ukraine. Um, you know, they're, they're clearly being defeated in Ukraine or at least pushed back, and Putin's not a big fan of that. So he's trying to get as many foot soldiers as possible. Um, it's not going to work. Uh, obviously, people are revolting. We'll see how that uh, how that goes, if it's successful at all, if Putin can you know, keep things calm enough in Russia while sending over, uh, as he said, a million young people into the Ukraine. So uh, it's not looking good. Russian tourists have also been banned from a bunch of European countries, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, and Lithuania have all banned Russians. So uh, the freedom in Europe is not as... Uh, as high as it would like to be for Russians, that's for sure. And a lot of people who don't want to go to war are going to be forced to do so because they can't leave. Or if they do try to leave, will be arrested. Or yeah, it's it's all not looking good and, and drafts just don't work. Yeah, I think the Baltics have been a bit disappointing here, refusing to take any refugees, uh, same as any, any other countries. Uh, yeah, you should really be looking to, to do that at this point. If you, you know, it, it's, it, even within your own self-interest, it's just... Yes, yeah, he's stopping people from joining the Russian army. So why, why wouldn't you? Um, so I think that's, that's been very disappointing. Um, I, I wonder, like, you know, how much of a hit this will be to, like, the, the popularity of the Putin regime within, within Russia. Um, you know, it's like, you know, people aren't going to like this very much, but I wonder if it will be enough to actually prompt any kind of um, you know, like any kind of like popular uprising that would be necessary to um, to uh, to the throne put uh, Putin. I mean, we saw what happened with the protests at the initial outbreak of war, um, mm-hmm. and the cops beating the hell out of protesters, um, and like the very like harrowing audio recordings that came out of that as well, um, and also just like. <sighs> Even in the, like, few days that people were able to leave the country, um, it was in particular flights to, like, Dubai and stuff like that that were just completely booked up. Like, people were trying to get out and get out fast. Um, And while the Russian economy sure has bounced back, there is not an appetite for war in Russia. That is very clear. That has been clear from the outset. Um, But at the same time, how do you vote Putin out when... I mean, it's a well-known fact that the elections in Russia are suspect. Uh, He's definitely not getting 83% of the vote like they claim. Um, Only Dan Andrews can do that. Yeah. And then on top of that, like, they announced a snap referendum in some of the Ukrainian regions, Um, I think Luhansk and Donetsk, but I could be wrong, I'm going off the top of my head, where it was like three days' notice on a referendum as to whether they could be independent sovereign territories basically just to fuck over Ukraine um, and not really for any other reasons. Yeah, the, the whole um, the whole war is not going well. Tickets out of Russia have, have risen up to like 3,000 euros where they used to get 350. Um, so the people that can get out, uh, the richest people in the country who could honestly probably get out of the draft if they needed to anyway. Um, in terms of getting Putin out, obviously voting's not an option. There has to be a point, though, and we see it with um, kind of dictators all around the world. There's a point where the people around Putin, they just can't handle those decisions anymore and they need a change, um, whether that's the military or the police. 
Um, there's only so many heads you can kick in before you've decided that's enough and then and then you change your tune. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how long Putin sticks with this because I would have thought that he was going to, you know, retreat out of Ukraine weeks ago once it was pretty clear that they were losing. Uh, and more fighters is not going to be the answer. The reason they're losing in Ukraine is because uh, it's not like personnel, it's technology and terrible tactics. It, it's not people. Um, but I guess if you send a million in at once, things might change a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, Russia is not just by Ukraine. They're fighting against like the combined might of like most of the West. So it's you know that it's it's quite hard to win the war of attrition in that kind in those kinds of circumstances. Um, yeah, so it, these are you know indeed like quite desperate measures from from Putin. Um, and another. Uh, country where things are going abominably is to say it nicely uh, is Iran where following the death of Masa Amini um, who was killed in police well she was she died after being in a uh, coma for three days following um, assault in police custody uh, for incorrectly wearing her hijab Uh, There has been massive outbreaks in protests uh, that has resulted in further people dying, um, as well as the internet in certain regions in Iran being shut down. Uh, As of right now, uh, Instagram and WhatsApp, I think, are still down, but it's expected that it's going to increase um, if these uh, protests continue and the information coming out of Iran is going to be sparse to say the least yeah the most recent information from amnesty international suggests 41 people are being killed in protests um it's probably more than that just because as you said the information coming out is not great um the protests though obviously good to see people out on the streets and and taking back what's rightfully theirs um iran wasn't always like this but it is now so um hopefully it can it can make some massive change uh that, that's what i'd be hoping for obviously the, the Iranian government is, is very powerful and their police are willing to use deadly force, as you've said. So, yeah, it's not looking good for the people that are protesting, but hopefully um, they can just keep going at it and, and something will change. Like we talked about in Russia, eventually um, it just becomes too much for the government to deal with. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a shame to see what happened to Iran over the years, going from having uh, having Mossadegh in charge in the 50s and then the Shah and, you know, taking over and then, you know, going from that to this Islamic theocracy that they've been on for the past 40 or so years. Um, yeah, just, you know, a bit, a bit disappointing. Um, hopefully this prompts some kind of uh, some kind of rethinking of the regime there. But I, I don't know. Um, I, I see this would be, like, fairly popular with the people as a whole. I, I'm, I'm not too sure about that. But, like, yeah, they haven't overthrown anyone yet. So um, I don't know. I think uh, so... We'll, I don't know, we'll see what goes on there, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how much faith we can put in there being any meaningful regime change in, in, in Iran um, in the near future. Well, I mean, even just from the uh, protests that were in 2019, 2020, which was to do with an energy crisis, that didn't actually result in any popular upheaval, despite the fact that I think there was 1,500 fatalities as a result of that one. Um, which, granted, this, if it goes on, could get a lot worse. Um, and, it, like, from where it starts, 
Um, and some of the things that have happened as a result have been poetic, beautiful, that sort of thing. And then you realize the people that are in the videos that you are seeing um, of the protests in Iran are dead. Like that is something that has, there's been a lot of content uh, on TikTok in particular of the protests in Iran. And then people are updating information and saying, this person from this video that you saw dancing or something like that, they died. Or this video here, which stopped suddenly, they got shot with six bullets. Like that's why the video stops where it stops. And so it's like, this is something that is happening online very publicly. Um, I think that it is something, it's a kind of protest that especially like Gen Z, it's one of their first real tastes of uh, this kind of protesting overseas. Protesting in the West and in Europe is obviously a lot more sanitized. 2020 did have um, the Black Lives Matter protests and stuff like that. And what happened in Portland, obviously not great. At the same time, people weren't getting shot on the street with live rounds. Um, the same with China um, and ho- well, the Hong Kong protests, that sort of thing. So I think that this is people becoming a lot more aware of this style of like protesting and response by governments. Um, and it's because someone didn't wear the hijab correctly. It's not that she wasn't wearing a hijab at all. So she wasn't wearing it appropriately. And apparently the morality police, and that's not like a joke, that's what they're called, decided that they would beat the life out of her. And this is something that's clearly happened multiple times because it's not a one-off thing. It's a breaking point for a lot of people in Iran um, in particular. Yeah. We just got to hope that it's the breaking point that actually makes uh, a, a change rather than a breaking point. And then, you know, like everyone did with the Ukraine, forgets about it in a few weeks and then everything goes back to normal and the police are back at it. Yeah, I think that the, I think that countries like the United States and other Western countries have lost a lot of their influence in Iran, especially in the past five years. Uh I know that it's like not cool to blame Trump for everything, but I think that Trump is a big part of why that's happened. Um, and I ultimately, whilst Biden and other Western politicians can denounce what's happening, they can't make the Iranian government stop. Um, and I don't know how many lives is too many lives for the Iranian government because 1,500 wasn't too many. <laughs> like... And a hell of a lot more people can die. Um, A lot of young women are dying as a result of this already. But at what point does people within the country that have actual power, ultimately, because we all know that women don't have a hell of a lot of power in this country, uh, step in and actually cause the uprising? Because ultimately an uprising of a few hundred thousand isn't going to be enough in a country like Iran. Yeah, I, I think you're right that, you know, young women obviously don't have the power in Iran. And I think it's important that look, we haven't seen any evidence of this yet, but hopefully uh, young men also step in there. And that's how you're going to really get change, right? If they, if it's a full generational change, because in Iran, the women will be just, just dismissed and uh, won't be listened to. And as you said, 1,500 deaths don't matter. So the 41 that have occurred so far won't matter at all either. Um, but, you know, hopefully they just keep going at it until 
something changes because eventually something will change. Um, these things don't last forever. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people are just are invested in I know, the narrative of the Iranian regime and like the you know, um, as many sort of Islamic fundamentalists are. You know how, how important it is to to reclaim these um you know these mythical um glorious pasts of theirs. Um, so yeah, until something until that sort of thing's tackled, uh, yeah, it's it's not it's not looking too good for Iran. Yeah, we might move on to a happier news, and by that I mean math, because we're going to talk about polling. Um, and we'll start in Australia because we haven't really talked about Australia much today, uh, and in particular New South Wales, because a big news poll was released as well as a resolved strategic poll uh, for the New South Wales election, and things are looking better for Labor right now. According to the resolve poll, Labor is up by 13 points in the primary vote, uh, like ahead of the coalition, whereas in the news poll, uh, two-party preferred Labor is still ahead by eight points, uh, which is better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, um, it's, I don't know, both parties are terrible in New South Wales, not like policy-wise, but just terrible at campaigning and at politics in general. But uh, 43-30 is a, a very big lead if that you know, Sydney Morning Herald poll is to be believed. Even 54-46, uh, that's, a, that's a big lead. So it looks like there'll be a change of government come March. Obviously, Victoria will. Uh, we don't have to worry about Victoria because that looks in the bag. But um, New South Wales is is going to be an interesting one in what is it, six months' time. Yeah, it's pretty wild seeing seeing Labor sweep uh, almost every single state government in the country, essentially, including New South Wales, which has been uh, the the holdout, uh, the big holdout so far. Um, so yeah, yeah, really, really interesting stuff to see. Yeah, I mean, n- never uh, trust New South Wales to not mess this up completely because New South Wales Labor does have a habit of it um, and ultimately as the last mainland state, sorry, Tasmania, um, there will be a massive media push to make sure that Perite yeah. and the coalition stays in power because, <laughs> I mean, even if you aren't, like, pro-liberal there are some people in this country that genuinely believe like one party holding all the states or holding the main states um is bad democracy despite the fact that it is literally democracy at work um so you know it i just i can already see the like sydney morning herald um and the other news corp headlines that are praising parate and i don't know accusing Chris Minns of being a racist. I think that's the one that they went with last election. So they're going to have to come up with something new. But, I mean, maybe they'll just say that he's Dan Andrews. <laughs> yeah, uh, a little bit more on the numbers. So I, this doesn't exactly, uh, like, cross over. But in the federal election, uh, Labor won 33% of the vote and the coalition won 35 and a half, right? And obviously we got a Labor government. So if you work on those numbers and you take into account the 9% of Greens, uh, 9% of Greens votes as well for the Labor Party, it, it looks like, to be honest with you, that's going to be a bloodbath if those numbers stay as they are. Yeah, I think the summer will be definitely interesting, especially with it being a La Nina uh, summer. And if there's floods again, just 
how the New South Wales government, current government responds to every single little crisis is going to affect this election because I think that people haven't forgotten 2020, let alone the, um, like the 2025 fires, let alone COVID. Um, and Gladys failed on a lot of things. So Perrottet's kind of got to prove that he's not just Gladys's taller sidekick. Very much um, so. But a positive referendum, uh, sorry, not <laughs> going to start that again, but a positive bit of polling that I found quite surprising to see is that polling regarding the referendum for the Indigenous Voice to Parliament is currently polling at 64% in favour um, of the theorised question uh, that the referendum will be, which is definitely higher than I thought it was going to be. It's a good starting point because as actual campaigning for this referendum begins, it's going to dip as we see the racist stats on TV. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see who comes out against this referendum. Um, obviously, there's no like formal opposition to it was like there was for the Republic um, debate as of yet. We'll see who that becomes, if it's the Liberal Party or not. If I was giving them advice, I suggest not to come out against it. If anything, just just leave it alone. Just like politically, it, it, it wouldn't work well um, with this kind of new Liberal Party they want to they want to go for unless they're trying to go super hard right which is also a possibility but 64 percent, obviously no campaign run against it yet but that's a, a really good starting point um you'd have to lose uh, a bunch of points there to, to to lose this referendum but of course we don't know exactly where these numbers are coming from right because the referendum has to pass a majority of states with a majority of votes so it's it's not as simple as just passing that 50 percent mark yeah, yeah. I, it will be curious to see whether or not liberals do come out against it in the end because, like, you know, it's it's so popular at this point that, you know, like, you know, maybe there's some sort of uh, voter base to be appealed to by coming out against it, but I'm not sure if it's a voter base that would be uh, mean, meaningful for liberals to chase after considering they're probably, you know, their preferences probably already flow, you know, one nation, too liberal anyway, so... Um, yeah, yeah, I, I do wonder who the opposition will be uh, coming, coming out of this in a few months. I, if I was the Liberals and I was going to go against it, and no, no one's going to be hearing this as a part of the Liberal Party, so it doesn't matter. Um, but the bad faith argument that you make isn't actually in regards to the Indigenous voice, it's in regards to framing it as a third branch of Parliament or a third house in parliament uh, because that's going to scare people because people already don't really like government and a third house in government to make it more confusing. Despite the fact that that's not what it is, um, it's going to freak people out and make them vote against it. Um, so that's the most obvious bad faith attack that you use against it. That uh, That's the argument that I could see the Liberals using. It's the one that would really get in with the small government conservatives especially um, as well as the libertarian thinkers. So if you can get that voting base to vote against this, that's how I can see it losing, especially because there's even people that are like died in the wool labour voters that are still like relatively small government um, that would then suddenly go against it. I don't think in the current political climate, the race argument is going to work on anyone except for One Nation United Australia voters though. 
yeah, uh, when it comes down to who's going to run this campaign against it, I don't think it'll be Peter Dutton. I think the Liberals can't afford that. I think Tony Abbott will be the person to come out and, and lead this, uh, you know, campaign against the referendum. Probably won't be successful, but that's that's the way that I think they're going to go. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe we see something similar to the same-sex marriage, um, um, where the whole thing is... Um, not focusing too much on opposing the the bill itself, but um, you know, oppose uh, the sort of offering some sort of amendment to it that weakens its power in some way. So similar to in the same sex marriage plebiscite, where it was all about uh, you know giving um, religious freedom um, amendments. Now, I, wonder, I, I, I guess we might see some sort of similar uh, push for such amendments here. Yeah, it's possible. I, there's so many different ways that they can attack this ultimately. And I think that there's also the left-wing argument against it as well that we've kind of sort of seen from some of the Greens. I don't think that the Greens are going to outright go against it. That would just be stupid on their part. Um, But at the same time, that argument is going to weigh in. It is going to probably be the most quiet argument of, like, right-wing, left-wing, the actual um, vote in itself and that is in favour of it. But it's still going to have some sway and it's going to convince some people that, hey, this isn't actually like what people want, that sort of thing. Um, I just hope it gets up. I mean, if this indicates that if you did it today, there is a decent chance it would get up. I think the other problem is, is people still don't understand it yet. So if this is only polling people that are knowledgeable in what the referendum is about, 64% is great. That's a great result. If it's actually polling a swath of the population and a decent percentage of people don't know what it's about, that complicates things because the more it's in the media, the more it's going to swing against. Yeah. At the end of the day, though, we don't even have a date for when this is going to, like the vote's going to occur. So plenty of time for both sides to win people over. Uh, looking to the UK, uh, polling has gotten terrible for the Tories. Uh, it's looking like Labor could be as much as 12 points ahead um, with the Tories at 28%. So, I mean, it's great news for Keir Starmer, um, terrible news for Liz Truss, who you'd think would be banking on some, like, polling boost following the Queen dying and, like, the celebration for the monarchy. Yeah, so my theory here is that usually, you're right, usually you would get some kind of boost after a new Prime Minister. We've seen it plenty of times before. But I think the Queen dying has actually taken away that uh, that kind of honeymoon period. Uh, like, there's been no focus on Liz Truss at all, apart from, like, um, people on TV not recognising who it was. So, yeah, I think, the, yeah, the Queen dying is obviously coming a bad time for, for Liz Truss there. And for the Conservatives in general, uh, the writing's clearly on the wall in the UK, you know, 28% down from 44% of the last election. It's uh, it's all but over, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, not looking good for the Tories, I would say. I think that the thing that can't be underestimated is the power of a royal coronation and, well, also a royal funeral. Um, and I think that until King Charles has had his coronation... 
polling is kind of in a weird limbo point. Um, there's obviously people that are very frustrated in the UK because they've lost work as a result of this fun um, of the Queen dying and that sort of thing. But also, like, nationalism is going to be at an all-time high um, following the coronation. And if that nationalism swings conservative, they are going to then see a bump in the polls. I can't imagine it's going to be much more than 5% as far as the bump is concerned. But the big thing is that they are just losing everywhere outside of England, especially. Like, Wales is going to almost completely go Labour. Scotland is going to go with the Nationalist Party. And Northern Ireland, currently Sinn Féin, is the most dominant party. When it heads to a general election, maybe that won't be the case. But at the same time, you can't really build your entire, like, winning base on maybe having a coalition with the Northern Irish Conservatives. Well, they've done it before, so I, I wouldn't surprise me if they do it again. But, yeah, it, it, it looks like it's over, but there's still a couple of years until this election comes around if nothing gets called early. So plenty of time for the, the Labour Party to fuck things up, as they've done plenty of times before. And looking to the US, because there's midterms coming up, there's been a fair bit of polling recently. Uh, and the margin for the House of Representatives is tightening up. While the Democrats are currently four points up in uh, generic polling, it's actually expected that the Republicans will have a 10-seat majority in the House um, following the midterm elections, if everything stays where it is currently. A lot of that is due to Republican redistricting where there's plenty of states where the Democrats can have the major- uh, the popular vote and win stuff all seats. But it's sub- I'm surprised that the Democrats are still four points up. I'm not going to lie. I get that um, the results of the overturning of Roe v. Wade is act- has been a boost for the Democrats, but at the same time, it just seems so volatile politically over there at the moment that, I didn't think that it was going to hold them at least within four points. Yeah, four points. Like part of that's obviously coming down to California once again, massive state, more votes, and that leads to that, um, you know, uh, lead in in overall votes. Um, but you're right, the redistricting is the biggest issue. So Florida, which is like the definition of a 50-50 state, right? That's every election, it's 50-50. And yet the Republicans have 16 seats and the Democrats have 11 um, and that's with the Democrats having won some by-elections and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's the redistricting is the biggest issue, uh, but it's, you know, you can cry about how, how the election's held as much as you want. At the end of the day, you have to win with, with what you're given, and the Democrats aren't doing that because their president's not popular and they're not, not uh, passing policy that's popular overall. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we got the Inflation Reduction Act a few, a few, a bit over a few months ago, I think. Um, and that, that, that was quite popular. That went down. All people, so it's not a surprise to see, um, to see the um, to see Biden growing some popularity. Clearly, not enough, but still some. Um, and also just the general uh, dark dark Brandon arc, which has been you know largely a success. Um, yeah, but obviously still still not enough. So uh, yeah, not not a great prospect for midterms. Probably looking a bit better than it did at the start of the year, though. I mean, I even look at it of it's like. There's the argument of, wow, it's still four points ahead, but it's also like it's only four points ahead yeah. in a recent poll when two Republican governors 
literally human trafficked refugees and migrants like in the past week um, in regards to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott um, busing migrants to Martha's Vineyard and uh, out the front of Kamala Harris's house, um, basically dropping them off and saying, here, uh, well, I guess Martha's Vineyard and Washington, D.C., you deal with it. Um, And that has resulted in a lot of negative reporting against those two respective governors, um, especially with the fact that Fox News knew all about it, but the respective states didn't know about it. Um, But then at the same time, it hasn't caused enough of a swing to widen that margin to five points or six. Like, I just, I think that the US is in a weird position where the Republicans keep doing insane stuff that makes you go like, but there's no way. Like even, even like traditional conservatives have to at some point say, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> but at the same time, the Democrats are barely ahead. Um, and the Democrats need to get 60% of the vote to actually win elections. Like that's that's a well-known fact at this point is they need two-thirds of the vote to truly win elections. Um, whether that's actually democracy or not, <laughs> like that's one thing. It's a whole other argument. But when you've got a president that is so unpopular and his unpopularity in particular is at an all-time high because polling has also indicated that Biden's disapproval rating is at 52%, um, that's a problem. That's the head of your party and people are not happy, even with a dark Brandon arc, which the memes hit great, but obviously didn't do much of anything, especially once conservatives co-opted it. Oh, it, it did something. It, it, it caused a rise, a rise in popularity, just not enough of one, because ultimately uh, people, uh, the American people don't care about migrants that much. They care about their, their petrol prices. So that's yeah. all it's going to come down to in the end. And the, the, and the, the IRA did, did uh, help out with petrol prices, if, if I recall. Um, and not, probably not too much, but a little bit. Um, and, and so, that, you know, some people are happy about that, but just, just not, not, not enough. Yeah, and, you know, Biden and Harris are both losing to Trump in, you know, hypothetical matchups. It's, it's not looking good overall. And it looks like the Republicans could control, you know, all, all three branches of government once again uh, come 2024. So uh, we've got that to look forward to at least. Well, yeah. And like even Trump is down 20 points within his own party currently. Um, I, I can't imagine that is actually going to have much staying power. He'll bounce back up eventually. He's Teflon Trump for a reason. But as you've made the point with petrol prices, but also um, we know that inflation is a, a ridiculous high, but also interest rates, I think, are set to rise 0.75% in the US. And that's another issue on top of that. And look, credit to the Republican governors, it is really easy to blame that on Biden. Um, and Trump also harps on that message of being like, see, petrol prices weren't this high when I was president. And it's like, yeah, what was happening when you were president? <laughs> like, he'll blame anything he wants on Biden, sure, whatever. But at the same time, a million people died from COVID. <laughs> so I think that people's short-term memory and people's wallets are going to decide um, the vote in November. And I, I can't see the Democrats winning the House or the Senate as a result of this. 
No, I would agree with you. And I and to, I'd say to any Americans that are listening, your petrol prices are already incredibly low. Um, just chill out. Like you have it much, much cheaper than the rest of the world does. Yeah, we pay two dollars <laughs> a liter, which yeah. is a quarter of a gallon. <laughs> Uh, but we might move on to gas of the week and we're going to start with Senator Jane Hume because uh, despite the Liberals constantly <laughs> demanding to know what Labor's actually done about anything while they were in power for nine years, um, she's come out and said that they uh, have no policies while they're in, op- the Liberals have no policies while they're in opposition, which sure is a take. Labor definitely had policies while they were in opposition, but I guess the point is to just oppose any policy that is put on the floor tony abbott style yeah labor had policies in opposition because they kept losing elections um that's why those policies were there uh i i give the liberals some credit here like they haven't been in opposition that long they should have definitely have stances on stuff i wouldn't necessarily suggest uh like fully planned out policies as of yet um that will come we don't even really know what direction peter dunham's trying to take this party but overall, just a not a very smart comment from Jane Hume, who it seems to be is going to be part of the face of the Liberal Party now, because um, we know you know Peter Dutton can't be the face of the Liberal Party. He just can't be put out in public that much. So it looks like Jane Hume will be that person. Yeah, I mean, Jane, Jane Hume getting, getting pressed pretty hard by David Spears there when she was asked that question, you know, which is exactly what prompted it. I just didn't, you know, that, that was a really good response for her to have there. Uh, nothing at the part that the, they'd agreed on in the party room, so she had to, yeah, probably said the first thing that came to her head, and it was, you know, we have no, we have no policies. Um, so I don't know, fair enough there, I suppose. It, it's not a good look, and I think Albo had a, you know, funny response to this on Twitter, um, where having a bit of a, you know, a, a clap back at, uh, clap back at Jane. Um, yeah, but, um, yeah, just uh, not not a great look, um, and something else probably said in a in a moment of uh, in a moment of of fear. I just think, like, you're a party that lost an election four months ago. You went to an election with policies. Are you saying that none of those policies you stand by now? Because those are policies that, whilst the Australian public did not agree with all of them, the Australian public did like some of them. Um, And, yeah, they shouldn't still be touting their weird, you can use your super as a part of your home loan, um, like, that policy. That's one that they definitely shouldn't be going with. But there are policies in there that they... There's no way that they don't still stand by them. So why not just say that, yeah, we still believe in stage three tax cuts, like, and stuff like that. I just, it, it does my head in um, because you're a political party. You have to have policy. And if your policy is just to oppose what the current government is doing, which is essentially what Tony Abbott did when Julia Gillard was prime minister, then say it like, you know what? Some people are going to respect it. And I would respect it more than saying we don't have any policies because we lost four months ago. You, you're a political party. You always have some policies. That's why you're pushing through amendments on every single bill. I, I'd just say that the, the Labor Party did the same thing after Bill Shorten lost. Um, you know, they scrapped all of their policies and the talking points after the election were uh, we don't have any policies yet. Everything is on the table and everything is for review. And that, that stuck around for quite a while, especially during, like, they got the benefit of COVID, right, where they could just hide away a little bit. But it, it was essentially the same thing of, yeah, we're in opposition, we don't have policies, we're developing those policies for the next election. So I think 
give it a year, those policies will come and we'll probably hate them and talk shit about them when they do come. I mean, I don't entirely agree with Labor not having policies during COVID because Labor was essentially responsible for JobKeeper even happening. Labor pushed through policy that ended up being Liberal Party policy. Like, I just, I, I think that it's not a, initially, yes, and also fuck Labor for doing that as well. Like, <laughs> you can say that everything's up for review, but there is stuff that we still agree with elements of that policy because you wouldn't take it to an election otherwise. Um, but, you know, that that's my take on it. <laughs> Joel, you were going to say something? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, probably, probably wait until um until the budget next year. Um, that that's when we, uh, that's when we first saw the signs of uh Labor's uh Labor's policy following um in the twenty twenty three uh in the counter budget. Um, so I reckon we will just wait until the budget next year and we'll see a counter budget from Liberals, and that will be the beginnings of their their policy uh, platform for the next few years. Uh, and. The other gaffe of the week this week uh, comes out of England because Jeremy Corbyn reportedly played a version of Doom, uh, the video game that is, that allows you to kill Margaret Thatcher. And whilst I get that some Tories would be really mad about this, and it's not in great taste, considering he's not the leader of the Labour Party in the UK anymore, I kind of just think that this is awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't think this is a, a gaffe at all, really. It's just pretty funny. Um, I think if Corbyn could do it in real life, he'd probably would have killed Thatcher as well. So um, doing it in a game is not that bad. Uh, you know, he, he's he's fine. And I think at the end of the day, it's just pretty cool, really. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Corbyn would be the uh, doom manning his, uh, his, way, his way to Thatcher, you know, being a being with his government um yeah uh, yeah it's, it's uh, yeah it's not that big deal really uh, it's it's just mostly funny um i saw the pics i think it, it was just playing like an arcade game uh where like some developers had like made a modded version of, of, of doom uh where where thatcher's killed in the end um yeah i don't think there's you know, you know i don't think there's much to read into there he was just supporting some some, some indie game developers i think uh which is which is good to see of course um and just that happened at the game was uh you know it was quite violent against thatcher um so i you know yeah, it's just mostly funny. Uh, intentional or not, it's just funny. I, I think, if anything, the gaff is the UK media sucking about it because, like, yeah. they, they've got their, like, Rolodex of villains and apparently it was Jeremy Corbyn's turn to come out because they were bored of bashing Meghan Markle for a few weeks. So now it's Jeremy Corbyn's turn. Um, I hope that there's more stuff like this because this makes me like Jeremy Corbyn more and I already liked him. Um, so it'll probably get some younger people to also be like, hey, that's pretty based. Um, we might move on to please explain. Uh, and we're going to start with Peter Dutton, who, sorry, I have not opened this tweet yet, Rory. Uh, who has provided a list of external influences and as far as the list is concerned, it's not great. The only woman involved is Gina Reinhart. And then you've got people that are super popular at the moment, like Alan Joyce on that list as well. Yeah, uh, quite an interesting list. You know, Paul Murray, Tony Abbott, uh, Ray Hadley, you know, kind of typical right-wing figures, um, much more right-wing than I'd be comfortable with, that's for sure. Alan Joyce is an interesting one. Um I guess he's a Liberal Party supporter, right? That would make sense. He's worth millions and millions of dollars. 
probably more of the the center of that liberal liberal party though you know your turnbull kind of areas rather than your dudden kind of far right the interesting one for me though is in the bottom left corner of the first image there luke darcy like afl commentator luke darcy i don't the only political opinion i've seen him express is like anti-lockdown stuff during covid um so all a bit odd for me a little bit of anti-vax stuff there as well uh but apart from that you know just a pretty typical right wing kind of disappointing list from dudden i mean it really shows like who is this thing for right it's just like the wealthy uh, essentially um and that's that's what you can sort of expect from uh from a you know a dudden led dudden led party i think i think that the alan joyce one is the one that's like strange to me just because of the fact that Alan Joyce is the CEO of Qantas is not very popular with the Australian public at the moment from them scrapping vegetarian meals on domestic flights to backflipping on that, to firing 2000 workers to uh, whatever the hell is going on with Qantas and Jetstar for the past two weeks, because whilst Jetstar is a subsidiary of Qantas, Qantas is a little bit responsible and has to take the blame. Like people are not happy with Australian airlines. So I wouldn't be saying that, someone that is running a airline that is cancelling flights on the regular is uh particularly like influential as far as bear in my ear but you know as far as luke darcy being on there um i would have thought he would have gone with gary ablett senior and gone with the sovereign citizen ex-afl player route but you know i guess you go with the one that is conventionally attractive because everyone else on this list is a jump scare when you look at their photos. Well, especially Lindsay Fox. Look at that. Anyway. <laughs> um, but the other please explain item that, <laughs> look, that there is some explaining that needs to be done because there was frankly some wild rumours on Twitter over the weekend uh, regarding China. Uh, the fact that there was potentially another massive lockdown happening or a military coup. Xi Jinping might be on house arrest. Um, people think that he's working in a dumpling house in Sicily. Like, who who knows what the hell is going on in China? Uh, apparently, these Twitter rumours have been exaggerated, um, but the government hasn't fully properly come out and refuted them. They've just had, like, some of the Chinese-run English media say, like, these rumours are crazy, but they're not, like... No, Xi Jinping is not under house arrest. Here he is weekend at Bernie style. Yeah, just because something's crazy doesn't mean it's not true. Um, look, who knows about these rumors? Look, like they could all be rubbish or they could all be true or some of them could be true. We don't really know. Um, no one knows where they really started either. Uh, rumors come out of China all the time. But it was it was odd that they kind of all came out at the same time. Um, it was mentioned on Insiders on the ABC as well. Uh Samantha Maiden replied that don't believe everything you read on Twitter. So maybe there's some additional information out there somewhere. But yeah, if if any of this is true, then there's some odd stuff happening in China. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that definitely looks like it. Well, and so I think that the reason why the, especially the rumors about Xi Jinping being under house arrest and that senior party officials within the Communist Party um, are the ones that ordered it, is because we are coming up to the controversial third term for Xi Jinping. Um, And if he is chosen to be the party leader going into this election, um, then he will 
have gone past term limits, despite the fact that term limits were dissolved after the last election. Like, I, I think that this is one of those ones where may, maybe the media is just kind of bullshitting and trying to, like, stir up some drama um, to make China look unstable. But then again, it, it's, it is controversial that he is seeking a third term quite likely within the party room because they put term limits in place for a reason, um, especially after the 70s and the 80s. So... I don't know. I think this is something that's going to keep developing. Supposedly he is going to, um, like the loyalists are going to stand by him and he is going to be running. In two days' time, that might not be the case. Like that's just what the Australian Financial Review is currently reporting, <laughs> but nothing really stays around for long. Yeah, but maybe he could lose the election. You know, maybe a different party rises up and beats the CCP. Wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I... I, I just don't know where it would come from. Like, just put, like, an American meat puppet in. Because <laughs> that's... I, I just... Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I guess that brings us to the end of tonight's episode. So, Joel, Rory, would you like to share your social media to, with people? Sorry. At Rory underscore Dennis on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Joel W. Duggan, of course, on Twitter. Uh, and you can find me at Dodzy161 on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. This has been Edge of the Election. You can find us at Edge Election Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Edge of the Election is part of the Edge of the Crowd network. You can find us at Edge of the Crowd on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, if that's what uh, tickles you. <laughs> and you can read any of our stories, be they politics, sport, or culture at www.edgeofthecrowd.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.